This week on Our Thing. John Amicon finally came to my great-grandfather and said, I'm not going to pay these guys. In fact, if you don't do anything about it, I'm going to find it myself and I'm going to kill them all. Special guest William Hamilton Oldfield returns to discuss the sinister methods of the Black Hand. We went from being a primitive horse and buggy civilization and look where we are now technologically. And the fascinating Don Cook puts a spin on biblical fiction you will not want to miss. Stay tuned for the most entertaining hour in radio. This is our thing with everyone's favorite ex-gangster, Gunner, 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 Gunner. What's up? Welcome back to our thing on 1010 The King. Happy Friday morning. Hope you're safe. Had a great Christmas holiday. Bill, this is going to show after the holiday, yes? Briefly after, yes. Well, hope you had a great Christmas. Got to celebrate with friends and family and everything is happy, healthy, and well. Hope everybody's having a great Friday morning. And to those who listen to this after the fact on Spotify, hey, I hope you're having a great day too. So a few minutes ago, I was having dinner with a friend of mine who's my old neighbor where I used to live. Really nice guy, older guy. He didn't get a deer this year. So I said, hey, why don't you come over to my property and hunt deer? I got a million does. You can shoot one of my does. It's late doe season. And then my wife will make you dinner after. And so after dinner, we got in this conversation. The conversation went like, a lot of times kids will get into the field of business that the parents were in, right? And he said, what'd your dad do? And I'm like, lab tech. He goes, huh? I'm like, I went the other way. He kind of looks confused. I said, well, it did kind of go in the direction of my family because I grew up around all these mob guys as a kid. And I'm not saying it's like I was involved as a kid, but when you grow up in that environment, like you're not stupid when somebody says, you can't come to my party because you're in the mafia and you don't even know what the mafia is. And then you ask your uncle and he says, yeah, it's our family. So you start paying attention and you hear the word mafia. Then you see the Godfather, you're 10, 12 years old. And you start to realize these are criminals. So now I'm starting to understand. Now, by the time I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I started getting nudged into some shady business dealings, like scamming the Jerry's Kid charity, you know, stealing minor things like that. I sold fake perch. They were silver bass, but I sold them to a restaurant as perch. Anyway, by the time I was 16, 17 years old, and some of these older mob guys that I was around said, hey, you want to make a buck? It came really natural. So essentially, I did just kind of get into... You kind of got into the family business. And if I had the business, I guess. And they were just like, hey, you want to make a buck doing this and that? And I started drug dealing before any mobster ever said, hey, you want to make a buck? I was selling weed and doing little other scams and rackets. But by the time a mob guy said, hey, you want to make a buck collecting some money or beating some dude's ass, like one of the first mob assignments I had was just to beat some dude's ass. I didn't get paid for it. But then after that, he was like, hey, as a reward, Ward for beating this dude's ass for me, I'll get you a job working as head of security at this high-end nightclub, which is like a mob central hangout. And then when I was there, I got to network with and connect with and get to know a bunch of other mob guys who were like, yeah, I know this guy who's got a safe with a bunch of money in it. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's hit that safe. And another guy said, I know this truck that we can jack, a whole truck full of Coca-Cola products. We can hit the driver, take the stuff to a warehouse and get 10 grand. I'm like, okay. So next thing you know, I am in this world. And, and this is where I guess the beauty of my segue, Bill, is that I'm now about to welcome to the show my first guest, William Hammy Oldfield, who wrote a book called Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society. Huh? Before we get into the story and his book and all that, I must say this about William Hammy Oldfield. One of the most interesting people I've ever met. Certainly one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He may be the smartest guy. For all. This guy 
in my opinion, should be running the state or be a governor or running for president, at least be a senator or a congressman. He's that smart. He's that educated. He's that well-versed on all things. You know, I know a little bit about a lot of things, but I don't know a lot about a lot of things. This guy knows a lot about a lot of things. If you, if you bring up one thing, hot topics, cultural, socioeconomic, finances, anything like this, this guy is going to sound like he is an expert. Oh, he must do this for a living. That's part of his job. He's probably been doing this. No, he's a carpenter. But I mean, it's just really interesting, dude. So William, we love to have you on, Hammy. We've had him on the show several times, me and Bill. Love sitting down to talk to him about anything, really. Imagine like three friends sitting down to have a drink and smoke a cigar. That kind of enjoyment, you know, and then it's one of those you know, feels. So, Hammy, how are you tonight? I feel great. And thanks for the amazing introduction. I'll see if I can be the savant that you want me to be tonight. Well, you don't have to uh, try. I love hanging out with you guys. And uh, I haven't got a cigar lit right now, but I thought about it. You know, I didn't want my voice to crackle or something like that during this uh, this show tonight. And just a quick plug, you know, the last time us three were on the same conference call together, it was Badass Saints. Oh, Badass Saints. Yeah, man, I missed that. Yeah, that'll come back. We're all a mess, man. We're busy. That's the problem, all of us. We'll get back on. But we only have so much time, and I really wanted to talk about your book a little bit. So, Hammy's book, Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society. Very interesting, super educational, and also enlightening. I'm going to let him tell the story of it. But basically, in a nutshell, his grandfather or great-grandfather was postal inspector who essentially took on the mafia, but the real mafia, before there was like the American mafia, it was called the Black Hand. I know this to be true, and before I ever met Hammy or even heard this from him, uh, my grandfather, he, I remember him saying, the Black Hand runs this neighborhood. And I'm like, what's the Black Hand? And he said, the mafia, our family, the black hand runs the neighborhood. Anyways, I had heard that term, the black hand. So Hammy wrote this book, kind of chronicling this amazing journey of his grandfather, or was it your great-grandfather? It was my great-grandfather. A lot of people don't even know this, but before 1969, the post office was actually a cabinet department. It was a U.S. department. It was not a sort of a public-private company like it is now. And so the Department of the Post Office had inspectors. Because the U.S. had treaties all around the world with over 190 countries for the post, you know, to, to send mail and money and everything else, as part of those treaties, the postal inspectors had jurisdiction worldwide. Those countries had to sign on. So these inspectors could travel anywhere in the world to take on a criminal or to chase down any case. And so they were the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world. And ironically enough, they're still called the silent service because if you ask anybody, they're going to say, I have no idea who they are and what they do today because they don't like any press or any publicity. They still have the largest jurisdiction of any law enforcement agency in the world because we still have treaties with over 190 countries. You know, We're still mailing stuff to Russia. Everywhere. Literally every country. Even if we're at war with them, the mail still goes through. Doesn't their jurisdiction kind of fall within Internet as well? Yes, the, the Postal Service also added to the treaties, the United States, that all wire transactions and wire fraud and email, that sort of thing, electronic messaging, is also falls under the Postal Inspection Service. And finally, also uh, child trafficking. If you basically see the milk cartons, sadly, they have a child's picture on them that's missing. That whole program internationally was created by the Postal Service. And they work with Interpol. They actually work with the law enforcement, even in China and in Russia and other countries we may not be friendly with. That's interesting. I, I didn't know all that. Regardless of what's happening in the world, regardless of the relationship, that treaty still stands. And the other countries, of course, signed on to it. So even when we were you know, fighting with Iraq, 
if there were family members of Iraqis here in the U.S. and, and back and forth and they, someone needed some money or someone needed a letter or whatever, that mail still went through, if you can believe it, while we were fighting with each other. Tell us the story about your great-grandfather and tell us about the original Black Hand. Now, I'll kind of summarize a little bit so you can get a dig into the meat, but these old Sicilians came to America and they were preying on their own Sicilian brethren because the Sicilians from the old country didn't speak English here. They didn't trust the locals. A lot of people didn't trust them. And so these mafiosos, very dangerous and cutthroat motherfuckers, they would extort their own people and make them pay all this money. But tell them how they did it through the mail. Well, actually, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. It's so simple, but yet it's so sophisticated. Just like you said, there were mass migration of Italians from around 1845 till 1910 in the United States. There's literally over 2 million people. And about 40% of the personal wealth of Italy left Italy because those people came to South America, Brazil specifically, and mainly to the East Coast of the United States, especially uh, New Orleans was the main hub at first where they started coming in. And of course, all the mobsters had to follow them because, you know, you're losing your, your revenue stream. So they followed behind them and began setting up shop initially, like I said, in New Orleans. That was around 1885 or 1884. Actually, during the Civil War, the mafia were already in the import and export business in New Orleans, and they were importing fruit from South America. And so during the Civil War, they worked with the Confederacy to break the Union blockade of the Gulf of Mexico because they knew where all the shoals were because their ships were coming back and forth in South America all the time. And so they were helping the Confederacy to get goods and services into the country to break the Union blockade. So what happened is my great grandfather was post office inspector number 156, 156. And the first postal inspector was selected by Ben Franklin in 1775. So it gives you an idea that if you're number 156 in 1775, it's kind of an elite position. You're kind of special. Yeah. Yeah. Still early. Yeah. You have to be appointed by the postmaster who was at the time on the president's cabinet. And the president then has to sign off on it. And the Senate has to approve it, just like any other major appointment. At that point, he was very aggressive. And unorthodox would be a nice word for it. He hated the bureaucracy because he basically just wanted to take care of the business and get rid of the criminal. So he was always at odds with the bureaucracy in Washington and also his management above him in the Postal Service. And it was called the Department of the Post Office, by the way. I say Postal Service. That's today's name. And so what he noticed was when he was finally moved from the East Coast, where he started near Ellicott City and then Chattanooga, and then he was sent to Columbus, Ohio. Ohio at the time was a massively rich state. In fact, it was the richest state in the country because of all the manufacturing that was going on there. And so all these magnates like Rockefeller and Carnegie and Bolton and Mather and everybody else were there. And so all these Italians migrated there up the Mississippi River from New Orleans area to work in all the factories up in the Great Lakes. All this money was there. And so all the bad guys followed them. And funny enough, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, he was noticing because Columbus had a massive, massive Italian population. And so they started coming to him, showing up at the federal building, which used to be the post office in every city, was the post office in the federal courthouse. And his office was there. And a very, very prominent businessman named John Amicon and his brother, Charlie, were the largest fruit import distributors in the country. Columbus was a great hub because of where it was located in the country. And so all the railroads could go through there. And he was able to distribute everywhere. And he became very wealthy. He was getting extorted by whomever. He He knew who they were, but he didn't know them by name. So he came into the post office in Columbus and actually got an appointment with my great-grandfather and the Columbus postmaster, the local postmaster. He laid a bunch of letters on the desk. His English wasn't great, but he said, 
you represent Uncle Samma. You need to take care of this because this is letters. This is you. You're responsible for this. That's where the case started. And everybody had heard of these battalion bombings all around the country, the extortion and whatnot. But everybody thought they were just local gangs. Tell them how they did it. They'd send them a letter in the mail threatening to bomb. They did bomb a few people, made examples. And then oh, yeah. you're making $10,000 a month. You got to pay us $2,000 a month. Otherwise, we're going to kill exactly. you. Then they throw a bomb on your front porch. And maybe they, that doesn't scare you. So maybe they kill somebody. Yeah, but there was a clever way of mailing the letters. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that too. Well, the technique that they used, first thing, they were not localized gangs. We'll get that out of the way. They were franchised. So in other words, they would ship a relative of theirs to other cities in the United States and basically finance them in a supposedly legitimate business. So they called themselves the Society of the Banana. The first international organized crime syndicate known uh, up until that point in the United States. So what they would do is say you're in Columbus, Ohio. They would then take a letter, a guy named Salvatore Lima. He would write a letter to somebody they wanted to extort. He would then put that letter inside of another letter, another envelope with one of his fellow gangsters. Let's just say San Francisco. He'd mail that envelope with the letter in it to San Francisco. His gang member in San Francisco would pick up the letter, tear it open, and inside that was another envelope that was already addressed to the victim in Columbus. And inside, of course, that envelope was the extortion letter, the threatening letter. So this gangster in San Francisco would walk up to the clerk's counter, put a stamp on it, mail it back. So it would be addressed from San Francisco to the victim in Columbus, Ohio or Toledo or Buffalo, whatever. And so this victim would cut it open. He, of course, would see that it was from San Francisco and he'd see that he, they were going to threaten him with death or his wife or his kids or blow up his business or whatever. First letter was always fairly uh, polite. Yeah. Of course, he'd, he'd tear it up and throw it away because these guys are just thugs. I'm not going to do anything for them. Maybe a couple of weeks later, he'd get a second letter. Well, this time it would be from, I don't know, Florida. And it would be a little more severe saying, if you don't give us the money, we're going to start doing damage to your life. And he'd tear it up and throw it away. Then he'd get another one from Baltimore. It would be even more severe. We're going to blow up your store. The guy, of course, tears it up, but then the store gets bombed. And usually they made sure no one was there because the idea is you don't want to kill off the people that you're making money off of. Blows some windows out, scares his family. So guess what? Then he finally gets another letter. And again, it's from another city. Don't scare him. Now, all these letters have been written in Columbus, Ohio, originally. And so it's called a letter in a letter. The modern term today, you, everybody knows this, is undercover. Because an envelope used to be called a cover, not an envelope. The term undercover comes from this gang uh. where these guys were doing letters undercover. And finally, the guy pays and they send him another letter and they make an agreement. So he just starts paying. Well, little by little, these guys started getting fed up. One of the richest ones, John Amicon, finally came to my great grandfather and, and said, I'm not going to pay these guys. In fact, if, I, if you don't do anything about it, I'm going to find them myself and I'm going to kill them all. And of course, my great grandfather's like, whoa, whoa, don't take the law into your own hands. We'll take care of it. Now, of course, the Italian uh, John Amicon, who's a multimillionaire, you know, this is in 1908, he's a multimillionaire. He looks at my five foot, six inch tall, 120 pound great grandfather and he's like, yeah, right. This guy's going to do something, you know. Right. But Oldfield has been waiting for this. He suspected this was going and couldn't get anybody to cooperate. So when this guy walked in and was like laying these down, it was yeah. a dream come true for him. Yeah. Well, by the way, everybody in the country had already dealt with black hand bombings, extortion, that kind of thing. But everybody in the country thought they were local little thug gangs 
like in their little town. They never knew that they actually were organized and franchised that to each other and sharing the money and communicating. And they were even shipping money orders and money back to Sicily to pay the big guys who the big boss was, who that was a guy named Antonio Lima. He was the big boss at the time in Sicily. He was getting, you know, a nice chunk of money every couple of weeks, you know, and they were always addressed to his wife by the way, never to him, the money. And you can't really understate the organization. Sure. There were people that said, screw it. This is worse than Sicily. We're going back to Sicily. And as soon as they get there, there's letters. Same thing. Exactly. Yeah, get away. A lot of the Italian, the Sicilian immigrants actually turned around and went back home because it was so bad. And my great grandfather actually kept a couple of them from leaving because he said, I'm going to help you guys. We're going to help you. And so what Oldfield did was really amazing. He got a lot of pushback from the federal government. Everybody you know, in the Justice Department, there used to be a attorney general for the post office back then, like an assistant attorney general, who basically told him to go pound sand. You're crazy. No one believes you. There's no international organization, blah, blah, blah. And then Lieutenant Detective Joe Petrosino in New York, who was really taking on the mob already in New York, he's chasing down some of the bad guys and he goes to Sicily and he gets gunned down by the mafia in Sicily. And all of a sudden that becomes national news. And Oldfield's like, see, I told you. And finally they start listening to him. So he says, I think I know who killed Petrosino. And actually that's a movie that's going to be coming out by uh, Imperative Entertainment within the next couple of years. And that's going to have De Niro in it. Scorsese is going to be running it. Yeah, that kind of thing. DiCaprio is probably going to play Petrosino. So Oldfield finally gets attention. He gets a U.S. attorney out of Toledo, Ohio to listen to him. So Oldfield puts together all the postal clerks around the country, all the postmasters, the U.S. Marshals, Treasury Department, which had the Secret Service at the time, and other postal inspectors, and they put together this whole dragnet. And they start tracking all of these letters uh, all around the country. And the clerks actually sell the stamps, you know what I mean, to these guys. And so they're all watching all these bad guys that everybody suspects possibly are involved in organized crime. And there's 16 of them, actually. And these guys are like the top of the top in the mob. I mean, they're not just captains. They're running full cities around the United States. Boss. Yeah. So you had a boss and his name was Salvatore Arrigo. And he was originally from Baltimore and had already done federal time for counterfeiting and all kinds of stuff. He was the current boss, but he was 67 years old. While Oldfield has this dragnet going, the 16 guys all get letters, secret letters written in code in Italian, sent out to their houses. And it invites them all to Marion, Ohio, you know, which was a, actually very industrial at the time, but it didn't have a massive police force like New York or Chicago, or whatever. So they get invited there and they all show up on March 9th, 1909 for a meeting at Salvatore Lima's house. It was basically like the chief operating officer underneath Salvatore Rigo. And Oldfield had gotten a couple of revenue officers and they'd heard about it through those letters I told you about. They steamed open a couple of the letters and then then they put them back in the envelope and they continued to, to go to the bad guys' houses. So they do a stakeout. Now, what happened at that meeting was amazing. They actually created the first known constitution of La Cosa Nostra. And you're going to laugh because the guys inside knew that our guys were outside and actually didn't even care because they literally looked at law enforcement like they were nothing. They thought they were completely untouchable. Yeah, in the book, which I love, by the way, they were taking pictures of Lima's house and he got outside and he was like, oh, we'll do a family picture. And he gets his wife, his kids, his brother, who doesn't look too happy about it, a donkey, like a farm animal. I mean, they're all out there like posing for the police for this picture. Like, oh, thanks. Thanks for the family portrait. You know, oh, the guy. they actually went outside and, and the whole family posed for a picture. Right. And the, I mean, kind of those humorous things where law enforcement, you know, we know who you are. And the bad guys are like, yeah, we know who you are. But the law enforcement can't do anything about it yeah. because they haven't got the indictment yet. Yeah. So the bad guys are like having fun. They all come outside. 
I grew up in a neighborhood where all the cops in the neighborhood knew me, knew I was a bad guy, I was a drug dealer, I was a gangster. That. And one of my best friends' dad was a cop in the, in the town. And when his daughter got married, I went to the wedding, and I'm sitting there at the wedding, sitting at a table, 19 years old, pounding back freaking Long Island iced teas with about 10 cops that have spent the last five years trying to catch me. And I walked out of there drunk as hell. <laughs> That's exactly what this was like. You know, I mean, so I get it. Now, Ult, uh, he wasn't tight around the collar. A lot of people think he was because he was so formal all the time and how he carried himself, his dress. You know, this was before Miranda, before we had our right to remain silent, those sort of things. And so he used to be pretty rough on witnesses and the bad guys. Back then, they called it sweating them. They put him under a hot light. They might give him a whack now and then or a slap on the face or, you know, whatever it took. They still say that now. Yeah, exactly. So what happened at this meeting was pretty amazing. What they did is they retired Salvatore Rigo with a pension. And they actually selected, they didn't call it a godfather back then. He was called the boss of the bananas. The boss. Well, and it's worth noting the banana was an exotic fruit back then. Absolutely. Right around that time, it was extremely exotic coming from the Panama area. That's why we created Panama, actually, to protect the banana growers. So they retire Salvatore Riga. And there's a saloon owner and illegal gambling house owner from Cincinnati. His name was Francesco or Frank Federo. So they made him the new boss of the bananas. So let me read something just quickly here. You know what happened at this meeting. Right. And I'll cue up some uh, dramatic music while you read this. There you go. This is March 9th, 1909. The first known meeting of the mafia in the United States. Fourteen mafioso sat cramped in Lima's back room on chairs and fruit crates amid the smoke of a dozen cigars. Commanding his audience, Salvatore Lima called the meeting to order. First order of business, a vote to elect a new boss of the Society of the Banana. Arrigo, everyone knew, was too decrepit and unmotivated to remain in the position. A unanimous vote made Cincinnati saloon owner Francesco Spadero the successor. Spicero agreed to the title, happy to collect checks and use his saloon as a cover for the group's illegal activities. The real control, actually, was to go to the society's new director. All in favor of Salvatore Lima to be the new director of the Society of the Banana? Thirteen hands rose. Lima's first order of business then was to hammer out the society's new bylaws. There would be no insubordination, none at all. Over the evening, a brutal and sinister list of 16 articles was proposed and agreed upon. Now, I'm going to read a couple of these articles. We actually have a copy of this. The original one was lost in a flood uh, in southeastern Ohio years and years ago in the 1930s. But we actually, thank goodness, had a copy of it. This was actually used in the trial in January 1910. And it, still to this day, it's the only time the Constitution or the bylaws of La Cosa Nostra has ever been seen. It's titled on the top, Bylaws and Regulations of the Society of the Bananas. Article 1. The person who tries to reveal the secrets of this society will be punished with death. Article 2. A member who offends one of his companions, claiming his home or his honor, will be punished according to Article 1. You basically 1 and 2, you die. And so I'll just stop at Article 3, but I have to read it because it's pretty good. The member who tries to do harm to another branch of the society or to the family of other companions, if this harm shall have been grave, will be undressed and marked on his body with the mark of infamy and called with the word of contempt, swindler. And if the offense is more grave, he will be stabbed. Ow! Huh. It's very specific. You know what I'm saying? He will be stabbed. Ow! 
<laughs> there was a lot of those, Gunner, where it's like, he'll be stabbed one time for this offense. Like, not killed. <laughs> yeah, not shot. And then it'll be a stabbing offense. Ow! The freaking dangles were something else. I, I grew up 100% Sicilian home and around a bunch of old Sicilians and my grandfather, and I, I would hear them talk, and sometimes they weren't speaking in Sicilian, so sometimes they'd be speaking English. And it would tell stories about their fathers and grandfathers back in the old country, you know, and stuff like that. Like, you know, this guy did that, and they and he stabbed them, and, you know, or he said they, they held them down and they, so the family could beat them. And I'm like, any kind of sexual crimes against a woman, they beat or kill them, you know? I'll, I'll do Article 4 because it relates to that. Remember I said the mark of infamy in this Article 3? Okay, the mark of infamy was they ripped open your shirt and they took a knife. It's usually over your heart, your left pec muscle. They took that knife and they usually made Flash. three vertical slashes. Ow, ow, ow. And of course, those healed. And so if you were ever seen with those three without a shirt on, they knew that you had been punished at some time in your career. Not that you could be trusted today because you weren't killed, yeah. you know, but it, it did say that you need to be watched. Yeah. Now, Article 4 is interesting. As you know, Gunner, you have to do what you're told. And so Article 4 covers that. The person who is a coward and does not sustain the punishment assigned to him by the society, he will be punished in accordance with Article 3, which is Ow. stabbed or killed. And Article 5 was if you profit without giving the money back to the society, in other words, their share. Yeah. Ow. The same thing happened. Yeah, if you don't kick up, you got to kick up. Oh, absolutely. So if you notice how the bylaws may have been written in 1909 on March 9th, you know, they stayed up all night, you know, until the next day writing these articles. Every one of them is still existing today. It's just that the terms are different. Like you said, kicked up. This is just an older form of writing, older form of English. But every one of these, these 16 articles still applies today. But that doesn't surprise me. If this goes back to the old country, this goes back thousands of years, man. This is not something that they just made up that night. These are things that came with them from the old country. They were just establishing it in a new society. But these go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the, the old and it goes, Oh, yeah. It goes back to the clans, the feudal system of the Sicilian peasants. You know, in these rural communities, these Sicilians, those articles were the exact same 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. And these small communities, to an agree, they, they still act that way. Parts of Sicily, rural Sicily. Every one of these underbosses, if you want to call it that, uh, one of them was from uh, Pittsburgh. Another one was from Buffalo. You know, that sort of thing. These guys were pretty powerful. Yeah. Those towns at the time were massive manufacturing towns and very rich. These guys were very powerful. They all showed up for the meeting. They all then had to sign the bottom of these bylaws, and every one of them was signed in blood. Right, and there's a reason for that structure. Like, say all of a sudden I stole from Hammy, then I get caught, and I'm like, hey, Gutter, come on, man, we're buds. You're not gonna, like, yeah, sorry, no. Bill, Article 3, bro. Yeah. <laughs> My hands are tied. That's exactly why. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Rules are rules. Rules are rules. So that's why they formed the commission. I mean, essentially what they were doing there is the early form of the commission that would later become the controlling power of the mafia in the 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. And so even to this day, I'm sure there's a commission, some form of it. They control the bylaws and the procedures of the mafia. It all traces back to that. And before that, it traces back to Sicily. Very interesting subject, Hammy. We're running out of time. we out of time. We could go all night. This stuff is super fascinating to me, and I know Bill's into it, too. So Yeah, and I got to say, I've read Hammy's book, and I've done several podcasts on his book. It reads so fast and so interesting. It's not dry encyclopedic reading at all. He's a brilliant writer. Yeah. And Victoria Bruce needs credit, too. She wrote the book with him. We absolutely have to give Victoria credit. This was the fourth book she was involved in, uh, either co-writing with me or actually writing on her own. Very talented woman. I had done 14 years of research and really had it put together and done many, many book proposals and have written many chapters I didn't like, whatever. And I met her in Annapolis one time with just a lucky time you meet somebody. She was interested in it. 
And we just sat down and just really hashed it out. And uh, if it wasn't for her, I'd probably have a, I don't even know. It would be a book, but I don't think it would be anything like the one that finally was, you know, the finished copy. Right. I just can't overstate. It's fantastic. It's a great read. It's a really quick read. The things that they pack in there is just, it's really interesting. Oldfield Willick, where can they find you, Hanny? Where can they find your book? Where can they find you? Well, they can find the book anywhere, Amazon, or, you know, it's it's in every format, Audible, digital format, uh, Apple Books, Google Books. They can find it hard copy. It's published by Simon & Schuster, so it's pretty much anywhere you want to get it. And it's Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society. Just so you know, it's, it's heavily footnoted and heavily bibliographed. So if people want to learn more about the history of organized crime in America, basically all you got to do is read the book. But on the back of the book, there's a wealth of, of resources if you want to learn just about anything you want to know about the history of organized crime in America. Yeah, and fantastic pictures in it. One of the black hand notes he's got pictured has human eyeballs affixed to it. Oh, yeah. What are their bombs? I mean, it's probably one of the most underrated true crime mafia historic books. And by I mean underrated, just not mainstream. You know, you have Sal and Rob's Five Families, which I thought was boring as hell. Everybody thinks it's the mob Bible. Uh, that was my point. It's a great book, but it is very dry. Yeah. This is not yeah. like that. Yeah, we tried to make it into a narrative to make it less boring. It's not boring at all. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, I've read mafia books that, well, they contain a lot of information, can be a little bit dry. This is not like that. Do you have any social media you want to plug before we go? I do have an Instagram page where people can get in touch with me. And that's simple. That's just William.ham, H-A-M, dot Oldfield, uh, like it sounds, Oldfield. William.ham, dot Oldfield on Instagram. And people are welcome to contact me. I will be happy to answer questions. I do uh, interact with people who read the book and uh, answer their questions. And even uh, sometimes family members or uh, distant relatives of some of the bad guys and the good guys contact me. And so I'm happy to help if anybody has questions or wants to learn more about that pre-prohibition era of early organized crime. That's sort of my uh, my forte. Yeah, and as always, if you check this episode on the archives, I will have every way to get a hold of Hammy and see all this stuff and make it real easy. And listen, we will have you on again soon so we can get into some politics, hot topic, culture, social issues. You're super fun to talk to about that stuff. Sometimes when we get into those discussions, I forget that you're, you're the scholar of mafia journalism and stuff like that because you're so well versed and articulate when it comes to these other things. So we'll, we'll have to have you on to do that again. So I guess we have to take a quick break, pay some bills, but we'll be back with our next guest. So stay tuned to our thing on 1010 The King. We'll be right back. Hey, have you checked out our thing apparel? It's the original gangster clothing brand that lets you represent where you live, featuring t-shirts, hoodies, vintage tracksuits, and more. Our Thing Apparel allows you to customize your clothing for your city or state. And now we're proud to launch our Atlanta line of urban casual wear. Check out OurThingApparel.com and use the promo code 1010 when checking out to get 10% off your total order. Make our thing your thing. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. 
Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you're ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-852-1736-800-852-1736-800-852-1736-800-852-1736. Has someone in your family lost a job recently and now you can't afford your mortgage payment? Or do you have a rental property and your tenants aren't paying you? We can come to the rescue and pay you cash for your home immediately. Yes, sell your home and get cash all over the phone without dealing with real estate agents or having to waste time showing your home to lukewarm buyers. You don't need to lose your house to foreclosure. If you have equity in your home, we'll buy your home and give you cash within days, all in a simple over-the-phone and virtual process. Call now before your situation gets worse. Sell a home you can't afford or just need anymore and get the cash you need today. Call this number now. 800-950-3143. 800-950-3143. That's 800-950-3143. Paid for by Want to Sell. Let me tell you a story about Bill. Bill was a normal guy in his 50s. He had back surgery about two years ago. Bill was in a lot of pain. He dealt with his pain by taking the Percocets his doctor prescribed for him. Bill took more and more and more of them to help with the pain, until one day the prescriptions weren't enough to get rid of Bill's pain. Then one day Bill found someone to help him get rid of the pain with illegal drugs he didn't need a prescription for. Fast forward to today. Bill lost his job and his family. The only thing he does have is his drug dealer. If you know Bill's story and you don't want to end up like Bill, Call the Detox and Treatment Helpline right now to get away and get treatment. 800-762-6158-6158. 800-762-6158. That's 800-762-6158. How would you like to get a free $100 prepaid MasterCard and save money on your television bill? Then call right now. Make the switch to Dish TV. For a limited time, we're offering a two-year price guarantee. That's important for those of you on a fixed budget to know your prices won't go up for two years. Plus, you have hundreds of channels, lots of live news and sports, movies, and more. And when you call right now, you can also ask about our discounts for seniors and those of you in the military. So, make the switch to DISH right now. Pick up the phone and call. Enjoy your television like you are meant to. And when you sign up today, we'll also give you a $100 free prepaid MasterCard. Call right now, ask about our senior discount, our military discount, and your free $100 prepaid MasterCard. 800-795-5573. 800-795-5573. That's 800-795-5573. Paid for by NPS. Switch to Dish TV today for your free prepaid MasterCard. What's up? Welcome back to 1010 The King, our thing. And for my second guest, Don Cook, welcome to the show. There's so much about this author in the book that I like. It's got a little bit of everything. First of all, the Christian twist based on uh, historical fiction in Atlantis, a sci-fi with a space in it. It's just, it's great. This is stuff that I love. I can get into this. But first, we're going to get into your story, Don. Like, what led you down this path to write? By the way, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate that. So where are you from originally? And who were you before you became a writer? 
Well, I was a guy who tried my hand at many things, and I mean a lot of things. I even tried my hand at filmmaking, and in the process of trying filmmaking, I actually shot a short film called The Last Atlantean. Ah. And my book, Ithiana, Last Art of Atlantis, book one, is loosely based on that. On the film? On my short film, yes. Oh, that's cool. It's kind of weird where most films are based on books, but Selim is a book based on a film. And for a long time, I tried to get into the industry, but I found I didn't meet with much success. So I decided to go back to my first love, and that's writing. So you've always had a passion for writing. You've always been a writer? Yeah. Were you a writer in high school that you just loved English and writing and creative lit? Or were you writing short stories or books or anything back then? Well, I was writing some short stories. Actually, one of my first short stories was a story where I was the main character and the narrator, and I was going with this girl who turned out to be an alien. (laughs) I think I am too, so we have that in common. So after high school, what did you do? Where'd you go and what became the evolution? I'm assuming you're always a big reader. Yeah, always reading and more often than not watching films. I'm more of a movie guy than a book guy, but I always had a strong love for writing books. Mm -hmm. So back when you were breaking into the film, trying to film business, were you a sci-fi guy? Were you a fantasy guy? What was your mind creating while you were reading? Because I know as a writer, even when you're reading, you're always kind of creating. You're always thinking, I-, I could do differently. What were you thinking back then? Well, when I was writing the book, I decided that uh, I was going to go for a much different take on Atlantis and Noah's Flood than anyone ever thought of before. Like when I decided to write Ithiana. It was after years of pressure from my dad and also a lot of failures at other things. I decided, well, why not humor dad? And But as I did so, well, I read about Noah's Flood. I saw documentaries about Noah's Flood, especially a documentary from the old In Search of series hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And he had a, an episode about Noah's Ark and how there's evidence that supports the, the story of the flood and gave me unofficial permission to write the book that included Atlantis was Leonard Nimoy making a link between the fall of Atlantis and the flood. Because if you look at the story of the fall of Atlantis, where many ancient myths about Atlantis said that the gods were angry with, with Atlantis and therefore sent it sinking into the sea. And I decided, well... Doesn't that sound a lot like the story of Noah's flood articulated differently? Yeah, yeah. And I went with that and I took that and ran with it and I studied the science behind the flood story. But when it came to Atlantis, I just took the world that I've known and the world over the last hundred years or so and kind of Atlantinized it, taking various Greek, Roman and Egyptian influences And even the cover of the book actually has some ancient Greco-Roman and Egyptian and even Babylonian structures in it and the use of light swords. They're not to be confused with the uh, lightsabers in Star Wars because the blade in Star Wars lightsabers is made of pure laser light. But in The Last Daughter of Atlantis, it's made a crystal that can be heated up and can cut through anything like cheesecloth and can be used as a ray weapon like like a zap gun. Yeah, yeah. And also using hover technology to get around, like Doc Brown's uh, DeLorean in Back to Future Part 2. So I'm asking this, in your story, Diana, I'm assuming that the Atlanteans have some kind of more advanced technology. I don't want to give away all of the story, but it's fascinating because it takes place during Noah's Flood, yes, and Atlantis is going under, and your main character decides to try and save herself and, and 
the known world by constructing a ship to leave Earth, right? Mm-hmm. A space ark. So while Noah's trying to survive the flood, this civilization is trying to leave the planet. Yes. yes. Now, in your book, was there a divine supernatural power of God that gave them the technology? Or were they just more advanced than we realized? I like to think that they're more advanced than we realize because look at the last say 1000 years we went from being a primitive horse and buggy civilization in europe where the people of ancient europe could have even made the old order amish look like techno wizards yeah and look where we are now technologically well just this in the last 150 years it's even far more yes. you know, illustrated is that in the last 150 years we went from horse and buggy to now we have spaceships but if you really want to look at it we go with the last 50 years 50 years ago a computer was the size of my house now, my cell phone has more computing ability than all the computers on the earth combined at the time. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Maybe they were more advanced technologically. Yeah. We just don't know it. And that's how it is in your book. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because I just think that when it comes to technology, even though we were pretty advanced ourselves, mm. technologically, they could do cartwheels, somersaults and handstands around us. But along with that ultra high level technology the world's troubles yeah. are just as bad or worse or worse i even touch on themes of terrorism social breakdown yeah. political upheaval rogue states imagine that bill <laughs> everything we have today also i don't want to point out with the technology it seems like in the last 50 years we're more in a state of advanced refinement than advanced discovery yeah most of the things we talk about we did have we've just refined it to a level that we Fine. couldn't imagine but like we we still haven't been back to the moon, right? That's right. Well, I'm like this, man. I don't think humanity will make it. Personally, I think there'll be a war that, that causes us to kind of revert back into the Dark Ages like happened before. After the fall of the Roman Empire, we went back to the Dark Ages for seven, 800 years, whatever it was. But dude, at the rate we're going... 500 years from now, can you imagine, Bill? Uh, like, the Yeah, if we don't hit the reset button, it's hard to imagine what we'd have. Exactly, but I don't think we can make, because like you said, the terrorism and the political upheaval and the communism and angry people who think that guy's got more than me, so I want what he's got, and, and just on and on and on. And political access to grind, too. Yeah, exactly. We have big political access to grind. Yeah, more like chainsaws. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The scary part is the geopolitical. I, I am not writing out a civil war in this country in the next 10 15 years but the real scary part is a world war like you said the great reset where we have a nuclear exchange and 60 70 percent of the population is killed and it might take 100 years to recover who knows maybe it's worse than that i don't know but that's what happens in your book though the flood comes do you reference the bible is it a biblically based story at all because of the flood it is the flood is biblically based i even use scientific theories about the flood yeah. to explain what was written in the good book about the flood like the fountains of the deep you can look at it as being two kinds of fountains the watery aquifers that were underneath the earth's surface that burst forth and then there's another kind of fountain of the deep volcanic fountain of the deep yeah and with the fountain of the deep like the volcanoes and all that because it's tidal waves and tsunamis tidal waves and also it would cause a vapor canopy to go into condensation yeah mode start raining that it wouldn't even rain lions and wolves it would rain packs of lions and packs of wolves or if you had a several massive volcanoes go off under the tectonic plates on the ocean it would recreate you know the vapor or the humidity into the atmosphere it would rain for 40 days poor 
Yes. And you worked all that science into the book? That is amazing. I, that's what I did, yes. So is Noah a character in the book? He is. In fact, I had a character give Noah a life before the flood story. I made him into what we would today call a foreman at an automotive plant, only they used hover technology to build their vehicles. And he even was the choir master of a, of a goodwill chorus. This is Noah. This is Noah in yeah, my yeah. book. That fixes my question, because I was wondering, we, we yeah. picture Noah in a more primitive technological yes. time. So he is in the same advanced state of technology as the Atlantean. Yes. Well, here's what I've done with Noah. Knowing the kind of world that he'd have to live into upon God making the floodwaters recede, he went into a mode where he dressed primitively in simple robes and cloths, and he lived very, very simply. He went in a back-to-the-land yeah. mode. And if you look at the construction of the ark, it, it's pretty simple. Big, but yeah. simple. I mean, it's simple, but it's not. Based on the dimensions that are in the Bible... I mean, that that's the crazy part. If you take an engineer and they say, well, based on these dimensions, what was available and resources, you could build this and this would work. It'd be big, it'd be like a modern day thousand foot freighter, yeah. but it could float and hold everything. And I, here's my theory on this too. This is just my theory. I'm not sure I believe that the flood encompassed the entire earth. I believe it encompassed the entire part where humans were. I mean, it got, it's God. He could do whatever he wanted. So you could get one, you know, a pair of every species. But, you know, just to think about it alone, uh, South America, the Amazon rainforest, there's got to be 40 million species of animals living down there. On the other side mm -hmm. of the planet, God is supernatural. He doesn't follow the rules of science and, and, and nature. He does what he wants. So that's what you did in the book. Yes. And when it comes to certain species, Gunner, some of them, all you need is a small breeding pair, a midget breeding pair, and like various species of canines and even bears have one common set of ancestors. Yep. If you think about the cat species, that from all the way from the biggest of the big cats to your small little house cat. Yeah, cat. In fact, I think of house cats as being midget felines. Yeah, I love cats. Yeah, and all God would need to breed a whole bunch of species of cats is one breeding pair, maybe slightly larger than your house cat. I even use a house cat to fight off Ithiana and her husband in the book calling the cats Yeshua and Ecclesia. Remember those horror movies from the 70s where they had a cat leap on the face? Yeah. Well, I took that trope and worked it in the book where God used the feline ancestors to leap onto Ithiana and her husband's face and chase them off Noah's land. So, I'm just thinking about Atlantis. So, Atlantis was this advanced civilization that had technology. Was it they evolved this technology through just human brain power? Or was it divine intervention like Noah with the Ark? I think it was more human ingenuity going in really questionable directions. Even the use of large pickup truck-sized crystals that could be launched from super cannons and used like nuclear weapons either EMP, pulse bombs, or even distributing bacterial plagues or horticultural plagues, such as the anti-food gems. This is what made God mad? All this stuff that's going on with this stuff that you're talking about. It got so bad, yes. It got so bad that God got so angry. He said, enough was enough. Noah built this ark. I'm about to wipe him clean. And your character decides to build a, a friggin' spaceship. Yeah. You don't have to tell us if she makes it out or not, because we want people to read the book. Yeah, I don't even know it's fair to say God got angry as much as God found the need for correction. Yeah. 
Yes, and that he actually was grieved in his heart yeah. at how humans had gone. Yeah, because yeah, I don't think he's capable of real anger like we feel. But Yeah, uh, that we understand. But he's also, yeah, we can be disciplined. Yeah, yes. he's very disappointed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what hurts the most. Yes. We let him down. But he was grieved terribly after he did the Great Flood and wiped us all out. And he was grieved terribly, and he said, I'll never do that again. And that is the reason why today we see so much sin and chaos and destruction or whatever. But he has a second plan, and that's in the Bible, too, the resurrection of Christ. And you have eventually you have the, the rapture and the second coming. And so he's not going to wipe us out with a flood, but yes. a, a lot of people are going to get wiped out yeah. in the second coming. Yeah. It's sad. Yes. At the Battle of Armageddon. So are you going to write another book about that? Yes, I am going to write another Ithiana book. It's called Ithiana, Last Honor of Atlantis, book two. Ithiana versus the Slavers of Mortaxion. Think of it as Independence Day as Slave Revolt. So the humans are back on Earth or are they now on another planet? Well, it involves alien abduction, and Ithion is one of the abductees. This guy's got a great imagination, Bill. You got a great imagination. Yeah, yeah you do. And I even even have some famous names and some obscure names. Like, think about Amelia Earhart. Where did she go? Right. What about the French flyer Guinamere? Where did the real Jimmy Hoffa go? What really happened? I'm pretty sure I know where Jimmy Hoffa went. (laughs) (laughs) Was it him or was his cadaveroid? I use the term cadaveroid in the second. Like a clone. Like a clone that's supposed to be dead. Or like a D.B. Cooper. Yeah, D.B. Cooper. Yeah, I could have figured that in, but I didn't think of it. I thought about Amelia Earhart. I thought about the French flyer Guinamere. I even thought of Elvis, and I decided to have him be a military commander of the good guys. Yeah, he's up in space somewhere on a spaceship right now. He's like, yeah, he has an age today, and he did serve in the military. Yeah, he's got the background, kind of. And also Captain Mantell, who chased a UFO only to allegedly crash around the border of Kentucky. Is that the fighter pilot who served with the National Guard? Yeah, and also uh, several others. So many, I I can't get into them all. There's so many. Yeah, there's so many. Well, that's cool. And in your book, they'll all kind of show up and be part of this army. And obviously, I'm hoping that they're fighting for the powers of good. I would weave in some biblical stuff. Yes, God ordained for good plan, for his good. God ordained for the rapture. Well, it's not the rapture as the Bible describes, but instead more like just simple evil alien abduction. And the climax is where our Atlantean friend fights an evil queen who is the ultimate Nephilim. The ultimate Nephilim would have Satan as the big bad daddy. Oh, <laughs> you know, I've got to, he's such a textbook example of what you preach about, because when people come on and they talk about Rodder's block and things like that, he's like, man, you write fiction. The sky's the limit. There are absolutely right. no bounds into anything you can imagine. You know, and I think you are a textbook example of that. It's so much more than out of the box. Like you burned the box. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't burn the box. I blew it up. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. They're worried about writer's block or what they're going to write. I'm like, you'll never write on anything. Use your freaking imagination. Just let it go. That's the fun of it. That's the best part. Mm -hmm. It's just creating and running with it and building these different worlds, these different universes, these different characters. Your characters could be anything. They could be big, tall, badass, tough guys or little scrawny, tough guys, or they could be handsome and ugly. They could be have all kinds of quirks. 
They can do anything. They could build spaceships. They can, you know, go to other planets. Mm-hmm. They can do whatever they want. And you worked in the, like a little bit of, you know, truth uh, between the, the flood and Noah's Ark, the legend of Atlantis. So I love it. You weave it all together and you got a great story, you know, and this is the type of entertainment that people pay to read. This is why people buy a book like this. Yes. Escapism. Yeah. You want to leave your real world and escape into something that's much bigger, much more interesting, much faster, much more fun. And that's why people buy books like this to read. That's why I love books like this. Can he read a little bit of the book? Just a short paragraph or something? All right. Well, let me find a good part of the book. Yeah. All this, noble scholars, leads to only one conclusion, Ithiana warned. Our Earth and all life upon it are doomed with the end based on the combined forecast to come upon us roughly 10 to 15 years from now. The time estimate is approximate, but given the data and the conclusions presented, confidence in the prediction and its time frame is high. Yet along with this message of impending doom, there is hope, the only realistic solution. I allude, of course, to what I have named Ithiana paused, holding her audience in suspense or waving her hand with destiny-laden majesty before she announced Project Life Escape. Ithiana paused to take another drink from her water flask. Project Life Escape, noble scholars, Ithiana resumed, is the mass relocation of a sample group of ethical humans from all walks of life, along with the collective media record of our world's collective culture and various pieces of plant and animal life, the habitable planets located in other galaxies. This mass evacuation of a nucleus of our planet's peoples is necessitated in large part because of the alien-imposed anti-Earth embargo. There you go. Nice. It's deep. It's well written. Yeah. So it's almost like they're having a bit of a like a conference and saying, this is what we need to do yeah. if we want to survive. She's presenting her doctorate. Yeah, exactly. Based on our data, this is what needs to happen, and we need to go. So we got 10 or 15 years to get our strap together and get the hell out of here. Otherwise, we're doomed. And so they put their heads together, build a spaceship. But Noah builds the ark, right? He builds his ark, and it still ends the way it does in the Bible, with Noah and his family surviving. And I'll give you an interesting footnote. Shem's wife in my book is Bionia, that is Ithiana's sister. Ah, so there's a relation there. Yes, two sisters who are like buddy-buddy besties, only for Bionia to take Noah's route. Ithiana take her own way, and Bionia gets yeah. on the boat. Ithiana yeah. tries to get out into space. Well, we don't know if she makes it. Don't ruin it. Unless you read the book, you won't know. But that's exciting because where she goes, where she ends up, and what happens next, that's a whole other book. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's interesting. So they can find the book on Amazon. Amazon, Apple, Barnes & Noble, Friesen Press, F-R-I-E-S-E-N-P-R-E-S-S, Google, Kindle, an arts keeper. You know what I just thought of for some reason? Noah in a spaceship, he opens up an airlock and lets that dove out. It just freezes immediately and kind of like flounders off into space. Oh, so different from the Bible <laughs> that I won't even go there. <laughs> the dove the dove doesn't fly down. It just floats down dead. <laughs> it just oh, gets eviscerated as soon as it gets out into it's, space. It's yeah. Blown, yeah, poof, floats. Well, Don, thanks for coming on. We appreciate you. You take care. I'll leave this and you have a good evening, gentlemen. Yes, man. Have a great holiday. Great Thanksgiving. God bless you. Pleasure to meet you. All the best. Well, I guess that's another episode of Our Thing. Everybody, have a great week. God bless. We out.